true story. Read earlier this week. Thought this was kind of fun and really rather remarkable. In 1876, a small Methodist church near the ocean in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, was struck by a hurricane and damaged. So it was eventually restored. Another hurricane came along, damaged it again. The parishioners restored their place of worship once more, but enough was enough. So they searched for a safer location. They found some land and offered the owner of the property a generous amount of money for it, but he refused. Then came another hurricane. And this time, there was massive flooding. So massive that it lifted the church from its moorings and, and sent it meandering downstream with the, uh, the floodwaters. The residents of the town tied ropes to it, hoping to keep it from floating away, but the current was too strong. When the water receded, the building came to rest on the piece of ground which the parishioners had previously tried to buy. So they went to the owner and once again made an offer. He refused them once again. But, he said, I'll give it to you. The Lord definitely wants this church on this lot. And so the sign in front of the church has read ever since, the house that God moved. I just thought that was wonderful. There is no doubt that the church is special to the heart of our God. The church, past, present, and future, the universal church, chosen by God to be his instrument in both word and action, bringing the good news of freedom from captivity to a world of people who are held in bondage to sin by the powers of darkness. It is founded by Jesus. It is his church. It is empowered by the Spirit to live redemptively. God's people, called out of darkness into the light of God's love and grace, living as a witness to what God has done for them. That is the church. That means that the local church, expressions like ours, Applewood Community Church, located in a particular place in a certain period of time. It's made up of people who are the church, living out the mission of the church in the local church. That's us, Applewood Community Church. A group of people been called out of darkness into the glorious light and life of God. And so we are studying the prayer that we spoke together the prayer that Jesus gave his followers, the Lord's Prayer as it's been referred to through the ages, the disciples' prayer as it's also been referred to through the ages, it is the prayer, the prayer that he gave them in response to their request to teach them to pray. And, and you know I've suggested to you there, there probably were many things that Jesus could have taught them, but in response, this is the prayer. And it's just speculation on my part, I'll admit, but I believe that they asked Jesus to teach them to pray because they saw a power and a presence in his life that was related to his practice of prayer. 
And I think it went beyond anything that they had experienced in their tradition of prayer as, as the people of God, as Jews. I'm convinced more than ever before, my friends, that if we are willing to understand and pray this prayer, that Jesus taught his followers to use it as a framework that guides our praying. We've, we've said when Jesus said pray this, he wasn't suggesting that this is the only prayer you ever pray. He wasn't saying this one verbatim and that's it. What he was saying is that this is a framework that guides the praying of those who are my followers. And there, I think, is such power that is available to flow into our lives when we are praying in a way that the one who knew more about prayer with God than anyone taught us to pray. And so my, my hope is, my desire is that, it, is that it becomes even more meaningful to us than it has been for probably many, many years for many of us. That it, that it comes off of the page, that it's more than just a part of, of, of a litany in a service. It's more than just that prayer that everybody knows because we pray it so often in different services of worship, different traditions. I think that there is a power that can flow into our lives that enables us to live as the people of God in a world that desperately, underline that, desperately needs to see and experience the presence of God. I mean, would you deny that? No. It is so important for us to remember that, that the Spirit does not empower us to live our own lives. I know I've said this before, but we've got to remember it. Because that, that will begin to subtly filter its way into our own prayer lives. You know, Jesus didn't deliver us so that we could live a life of our choosing. That's what we were doing. He delivered us from that. There is something better. There is something that we were created for, and it wasn't for ourselves. We were created to live in relationship with the God who created us and who loves us. And so the Spirit empowers us. I think in response to our giving attention to this prayer and beginning to say, okay, how does this work its way into my prayer life? And then how does the effect of that begin to to live itself out? The Spirit empowers us to live a life, according to 1 Peter, that declares the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So last Sunday, we started with the foundation of the prayer of a follower of Jesus, those incredible words, our Father in heaven. How outrageous, we said, that would have been to his original followers. Scary, even. To call Yahweh of Israel, Abba, in the Aramaic, meaning Papa, probably the language that Jesus used, to call Yahweh Papa an invitation to intimacy with God that was unprecedented in their experience. And, and truthfully, probably a, 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 little, a little frightening. And yet, it's Jesus' invitation to them. It is Jesus' invitation to us. It is his invitation to every believer 
Every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, he is inviting them to come into the relationship that he shares with his Father, empowered by the Spirit of God, to address the one who created the universe as Papa. Now, if that doesn't rock our boats a little bit, something's wrong. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I've said to you all along that there's, there's subversion in this prayer. You know, to, to a world, many of whom do not believe in God or doubt the existence of God, we come along and say, oh, there is, and he's my papa. And their response is, you're nuts. That's a good response. I think that's what Jesus calls us to. Prayer, I need to say this carefully, but I'm just going to say it. I have begun to reach that place in my life where I don't think prayer is really so much anymore about what we get. Can I say that? It's just not about what we get. Prayer is about cultivating intimacy. Intimacy with with an all-powerful being who has chosen to reveal himself to us as our Papa. Permission given by Jesus. In a call to self-examination, Brendan Manning writes these words, if you've read Manning, as only he can. He says, you know, to ascertain where you really are with the Lord, recall what saddened you this past month. Was it the realization that you did not love Jesus enough? That you did not seek his face in prayer often enough? That you did not care for his people enough? Or did you get depressed over a lack of respect, criticism from an authority figure, your finances, a lack of friends, fears about the future, or your bulging waistline? Conversely, says Manning, what gladdened you this past month? Reflection on your admission into the Christian community. The joy of saying slowly over and over again, Abba, Father. The afternoon that you stole away for a couple of hours with only the gospel as your companion. Or were the sources of your joy a new car, a Brooks Brothers suit, a great date, Great sex, a raise, or a loss of inches from your waistline. The reality, my brothers and sisters, for many of us as God's people, is that the truth of God as Father does not bring a thrill to our souls because we are busy in this life maintaining and doing and striving for success rather than stopping to remember those words. You remember that Jesus introduced this prayer with, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I'm just not certain that prayer is really about getting stuff. I think it's, it's about intimacy with Father. And yet... I understand, too, that that for many, that image of Father can produce a pain, a discouragement, feelings of of disappointment. I think that's why it's so important for us to hear the description that Jesus couples with 
our Father in heaven, holy is your name. It is a word that, that at its root means distinct. It means separate. To say that God is holy is to say that God is totally other. That God is separate. That God is a different, he's in a different category. And it's a category all his own. He's in a class all his own. That means that, that he is a father who is, who is perfect. Perfection flows out of his holiness. He is perfect in all the ways that make a perfect father. In the way that the father deals with his children. Perfectly loving. Perfectly patient. Perfectly fair. A perfect provider and caregiver. You know, my earthly father was a wonderful dad in many, many ways. But dad worked a lot. Often six days a week. Occasionally he would work seven days a week. And I can remember, particularly in my, my third, fourth, fifth grade years, when, when baseball, I could finally play organized baseball. I could, be, I could be in Little League. It was the love of my life. I grew up in a neighborhood where we were just playing baseball all seasons of the year, and finally it was that summer after third grade, man, we could be part of a team. I mean, we were going to get shirts, you know? Oh, my gosh. I can remember the excitement of that, and I can remember wanting to play catch all the time, and so, you know, rush home from school, and if there was a buddy around, you know, we'd run over to the field, and we're playing catch, and we're batting the ball around as best third and fourth graders can do waiting for my dad to come home so that we could play catch. Sometimes he would and sometimes he wouldn't, depending on how tired he was. Now, that's just a small little thing. It's insignificant, really. But it's an image that I associate with father. You have images that you associate with father. And that's where we need to come back to the Scriptures. We need to come back to the words of Jesus. We need to understand His confidence in the Father and who He reveals the Father to be and go with that. We've got to push through those things that distract us with poor images and associations of Father. I've come to realize that my Heavenly Father is never, never too tired to spend time with me. Never. Because he is a perfect papa. His energy to be with me never wavers. He desires to spend time in communion with me. Did you know that because of his love for us, his holy love, His love never changes. Did you know that God loves you today at this moment as much as he did yesterday? And he loves you at this moment as much as he's going to tomorrow. There is nothing that we do or that we don't do to earn the love of God. Somebody say amen. Are you confident in that? Are you confident that there is nothing you can do 
that will make him love you less or love you more. That's the invitation that Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us into relationship with Abba who loves us more than we can comprehend. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, for all eternity as his children. Our God has chosen to adopt us into his family. He has become our heavenly father. He is holy. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the foundation from which we pray. That is the starting point. And I think that, that if these starting principles of our Father in heaven who is holy, if they do not shape our prayer lives, then we are never going to move past praying as just an activity that we, that we know that we ought to do. And, and so we do it sometimes only in hopes that it, that it might accomplish something. Our Father in heaven who is holy. That's the relationship of intimacy that Jesus calls us into that I think begins to fuel our prayer life. Intimacy with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Privilege of those who are His followers, who have become the children of God because they have put their faith and the control of their lives into the hands of His Son. And it's only, I think, as we understand and embrace and consciously begin to live into this relationship of intimacy with our Heavenly Father that that the position from which we pray then allows us to speak with a sense of conviction and even anticipation what is the very first petition of the prayer. Heather, can we put that one slide up? Your kingdom come, your kingdom, will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't think it's an accident, friends, that that Jesus teaches us that our first priority in prayer, our first petition, if we want to to speak of it in, in that language, has got to be about our Father's reign and rule. And I think if we could have been with Jesus there was probably an energy that was bubbling out of him as he taught his disciples this prayer because no one knew the Father like Jesus. And implied in these words are, if you knew the Father like I do, you would be so excited about this. First petition. First piece of the framework that shapes our praying and the petition of our lives. When Jesus introduces this first, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is challenging what I think is the natural inclination of our hearts to make prayer about us. Okay, the natural inclination of my heart to make prayer about me. Okay, if you don't do that, then just forget this part, okay? To zero in... As God's people, we, we, we begin to zero in on the, on the lesser things rather than be a people who are so taken with God as Father that our greatest desire is for Him, more of Him, and for more of His work in the world. I think that's the passion of Jesus that's flowing 
out of these words. And again, I think, I think this is something that the Spirit grows in our lives if we're willing to, to work at making this prayer the framework that shapes our relationship with our Father. So our text this morning is actually going to be from John's Gospel, John uh, chapter 6. I've, just, I've chosen it, just a few selections from a text, because it reminds us of, of the passion that Jesus had to do the will of his Father and what that will is. And I think it makes so much sense for us to have these words in mind as we uh, just flesh out this, this petition a little bit more. <clears throat> now we're going we're gonna to jump in in the middle of a text, so let me just give you a real quick context Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and and then he left the crowd, went to a quiet place to be with his father, as we often see him do. The crowd hunts him down, and uh, he sets them up for some important teaching by saying this, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I wonder how they responded to that. And then he said this, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then some in the crowd asked him, well, what must we do to do the works of, that, that God requires? And Jesus said, to believe in the one he has sent. That's what the Father requires. And then they asked him, well, what miraculous sign will you give us so that we can believe in you? Just fed 5,000 plus people, but they want a sign. And they said, you know, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. That was bread from heaven. And Jesus is thinking, whoop-de-doo, but he doesn't say that. He said to them, it is the Father that gives them the true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. And suddenly light began to glimmer and they said, oh, sir, from now on, Give us this bread. Let's stand together and read the rest of what Jesus teaches them here. Together. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All whom the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Amen. My sisters and brothers, the word of the Lord for God's people. Amen. Okay, go ahead and and be seated. Heather, can we put that... uh, that next slide, we just, you just read these. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So, just talk to your neighbor for a couple of minutes. What do these words teach us or give us hints at about the kingdom of our Father 
and his will. Okay. Might have to wrestle a little bit. It's good for our brains. Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. What do these words teach us about the kingdom of our Father and his will? Okay, what do you think? You ready? <laughs> what brilliant gems did you hear from your neighbor? What, uh, what is Jesus teaching us here about the kingdom and, and the will of his Father, the will of our Father? It's available. It's available to everyone. Okay. What else? He wants it, wants it for everyone. It's still going on. Good, good. What else? It ends up in eternal life. Tell me a little bit more about the will of the Father. What, what, I mean, Jesus is pretty specific. This is my Father's will. What is the will of the Father? Life change. Yes? Life's got to change in order for us to spend eternity with him. Doesn't happen without life change that comes through the transforming grace of God and His Son. Doesn't want to be separated from His people, from those whom He created for Himself. Yeah, what else? Oh, we do. We need the Son. Ah, no confession of faith is what we're wondering about, right? You know, there are some situations in which I think I can easily understand that, and then there are others when I'm not so sure I do. But what I am confident of is that God in his truth and the perfection of who he is and in his justice and his righteousness deals with sinful humanity fairly and justly. And there's much about that that I don't understand. I can't put all those pieces together. But I'm going to trust him. Because you thought maybe the only one that was struggling with that, huh? (laughs) But I think that what this passage does remind us of is the urgency, the importance that people have the opportunity to hear the news of what God has done in providing a way back to him through the death and the resurrection of his son. Jesus came so that life could be known by those who knew only death. Powerful stuff. The kingdom of God, Jesus comes from heaven and he comes to earth. It's not uncommon in scripture for the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God to be interchangeable. There's really uh, no separating, I think, the truths from what Jesus, uh, these truths that Jesus is teaching us And that is that the perfection of of who God is, as our Heavenly Father, perfect in in every way, it impacts impacts the nature of His kingdom and and His will. Because God is good and because He is perfect in every way, then His kingdom and, and His will are also perfect in every way. And so, the relationship with our Heavenly Father, the relationship that we have have wanted to to cultivate independence upon the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place of greater intimacy, I think impacts our desire for us to to pray this as we grow in our understanding of of the goodness and perfection of God as our Father, fruit that comes from intimate time with him, our longing to see more of him in this world will impact our prayer lives and I think 
That's what Jesus is driving at when he's, he's teaching his followers to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come has to do always with, with the reign of God. And our perspective on the kingdom is, is informed by Scripture. The kingdom of God, quite simply, is where God is king. And, and his reign over all that is, is one that is characterized by his perfection in every way. The kingdom of God reflects the character of the king. That makes sense? We get glimpses of the heavenly kingdom in Scripture. It is a, it is a marvelous place. Uh, those who live there find themselves living in the light of God. A, a glimpse of the kingdom of God in heaven in Revelation tells us that the, n- there's no sun necessary there because the light of God's presence is, is the light of that place. No pain, no sadness, no death. It is a nice place. And those who live there Again, glimpses from Revelation. Those who live there are overcome with the love that the king has for them. And they spend much time in adoration and worship of him. And I think sometimes, if you're like me, I I respond to that with a little bit of a, wow, is that all we're going to do in heaven? But I think that's more a statement about me and my limited understanding of who God is in all of his glory than it is about the activities of, of heaven. <clears throat> Those who are in the kingdom of, of God in heaven have the distinct advantage of seeing the king in all of his glory. They're not looking through that, that dark, dim glass that Paul writes to the Corinthians about. They're doing his will, they're doing his bidding, and it is a joy and it is a delight. Every creature of human origin and angelic origin lives gladly in the presence of the king, doing the will of the one who loves them so perfectly. I can't get my head around that. Because the kingdom on earth is a far different story. Those words of Jesus, for I have come from heaven, that you discuss not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me speaks of a far different situation on this earth. That the the kingdom of God is not the predominant kingdom. It is is not perhaps the the, the popular kingdom. And the son is on a mission. And I think that's what he describes for those who are listening to him in John chapter 6, is his mission to make the Father's transforming love available through his death and resurrection, opening up the possibility that people can be restored to the relationship with God for which they were created. And what is implied is that they will live differently in response to that love relationship. That life will will look like Jesus. It will be shaped by everything that, that Jesus taught everything that that we find taught by by the apostles in the scripture. The life that looks and sounds like Jesus will be empowered by the Spirit of God who who indwells his people. Because it is a life of sacrifice, of giving ourselves away for the sake of making the king known as Jesus did by giving himself away.
I think that way too often, God's people, and I include myself in that mix, we get caught up in trying to discern God's will for our lives, particulars. You know, should I go here or there? Should I marry this person or that person? Questions that I think, oddly enough, if I, if I really think about it, they become more about me, they become more about us, than about God and witness to others for the sake of their transformation. Does that make sense to you? The will of God on earth, according to Jesus, is that people surrender their lives to his love and his control, which is precisely what the enemy does not want. And they give themselves over to the leading of God's spirit in them day by day. The scripture will be their guide and the spirit will empower them to live a life of personal surrender that has an impact on people seeing God and getting a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. I think that kingdom is best seen when God's people are living in this way. Living in a life that is empowered by the Spirit of God. I don't think that living out the will of God is really rocket science at all. It actually might be harder than rocket science because it takes more than our brains. It comes from a heart that is absolutely taken with the love of the Heavenly Father. And that is something that only the Spirit can cultivate in our lives and in our hearts and minds as we take the time to seek after intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And our hearts, redeemed though they may be, do not easily give up the struggle to be in control. We talk about control freaks. Those are the folks in our minds that are really extreme and how they're trying to order their lives. But the reality is, all of us are control freaks. Prior to the transformation that God brings into our lives, and even after that transformation, we still find it difficult to give up control. Controlling our, 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 our own lives and the decisions that we make without ever consulting the Father. Circumstances that we find ourselves in, we want to control those. Uh, we want to control others in the way in which they impact our lives. Jesus came to deliver us from all of that need to control. Starting with with self. This is a risky petition. Jesus knew that. It's a priority petition. If we are not in a place where we are desiring by the Spirit's power to see more of God's kingdom come on earth, to see more of His will done, and that is the transformation of lives turning to Jesus as Lord. If we're not in a place where that is really what is energizing us and pushing us with passion through life, then I'm not sure that the rest of the prayer is really going to make any sense to us at all. I think it's important too to remember, excuse me, that when Jesus 
suggests that, that more of the kingdom of God and more of the will of God is something that needs to come to earth. He's not talking about some large systemic overthrow of, of, of a human system. I think the overthrow that he has in mind is, is the stronghold of the human heart that keeps persons in bondage to the sin of self-worship. It's really the bottom line. Jesus is, is, is driving home that question of who are you worshiping in your life? What is priority in, in your life? And so once the human heart is set free by the power of God's Spirit, free from the sin of self-worship, then we begin to live out before others what it means to worship God as our Heavenly Father. Which I think is the real subversive nature of this this prayer. The church is the people of God. And those who begin to pray like this, begin to incorporate these principles into their prayer lives and let their prayer lives be shaped, will become the fragrance of God in a world that smells a lot like death. That's what Paul meant. You've probably heard these words when he wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. As the Spirit begins to work in us, begins to transform and empower our passion for the kingdom of God, for people to see more of what that looks like in our lives and and together, for people to, to find the transforming grace of God in their lives, the fragrance of God begins to just kind of waft its way through the world. So may we pray these these petitions as we move forward in the confidence that the Spirit gives us as children of God, our Heavenly Father. And may He lead us in ways that bring glory to God and contribute to the release of others who are still held captive in their sin. I've asked Karen if she would pray for us this morning, just kind of in the spirit of, of where we have been. Thank you for leading us.